Thanks for listening to the podcast of Hope Church in East Hampton, Connecticut. Our mission is to love God, love people, and serve the world. To find out more about Hope Church, be sure to check out our website at cthope.com. So uh, one of the things we like to do as a family is watch movies. I think that's probably true for every family, right? And one of the things that we try to do with our kids is introduce them to movies uh, that we liked and appreciated when we were younger, my wife and I. And um, so uh, the other night we, we came across one uh, that we decided that we would... Um, watch with our children. Now, again, when we make these suggestions, most of the time our kids roll our eyes. It's actually an impossible task to find a movie that we all, yeah, my daughter is shaking her head. We can't ever do it. It's like an argument every time. But anyways, we did watch this movie called What About Bob? Anybody remember What About Bob? Okay, so if you're a millennial, you've probably never even heard of this movie. Uh, but for some of us um, who are a little bit older than that, we remember uh, this coming out uh, probably in our teenage years. It was my teenage years, I guess. Um, so it's this, about this man named Bob, and he has this, uh, these phobias, right? He has this multi-phobic personality. And um, to be honest, so he has seen a ton of psychiatrists throughout his life. He drives them crazy. And so the kind of the movie opens with uh, this, this really flustered psychiatrist saying, I'm out, I'm done. And he's calling up this other psychiatrist and, and you know, he's getting his patients off to other doctors. And he, he calls up this one doctor and he's like, hey, I have this patient. I'm closing my practice. Uh, would you please do me a favor and would you see him? And so uh, this guy uh, unknowingly says, sure, no problem. I will do that. Just, just keep in mind, I'm going on vacation uh, in a couple days. And so again, in the movie, basically what happens is he thinks he's clear, but it turns out that Bob is actually in his office as he hangs up the phone. He's right there in his face. And so he begins to have this relationship with Bob, and he's like, well, listen, after I get back from vacation, I'll see you. Well, the premise of the movie is Bob gets real nervous. He starts being afraid because that's his personality. He's, he starts getting really anxious. And through this series of events, he finds where this doctor is vacationing. And he shows up in New Hampshire at this guy's vacation house with his whole family. And the basic premise of the movie is he endears himself to the family while the psychiatrist doctor is so frustrated and overwhelmed uh, by this this guy and this this lack of boundaries that ends up turning out that he becomes the the crazy one and that's kind of how the the movie goes but but here's the thing about bob that i want to talk about really quickly as i set up our new series today Bob has this view of the world. Bob has this, all of these fears, these anxieties, you know, he's going through uh, because he, he believes that he might catch diseases, uh, that he might get hurt. Um, and so his view of the world changes everything about how he lives, how he behaves, how he acts. He doesn't go anywhere without his uh, little uh, Kleenex to open up every door handle. Uh, he's never been on a boat. And so that's kind of one of the key uh, scenes in the movie. I'm sailing, I'm sailing. And he's like tied up to the, to the boat because he's afraid of uh, falling off. I mean, again, 
actually a very stressful movie for me, by the way. Um, I'm like, boundaries, people. Um, but that's the thing. It, what, how he perceived the world, right or wrong. We might look at that and say, hey, that's crazy. It doesn't even make any sense. But right or wrong, that's how he perceived the world. And in response to that, he behaved a certain way. You know, I want you to keep that story in mind as I talk about uh, the message today, which I am very excited about. We come up here every week, Carrie and myself, and we are humbled because we know the weight of responsibility of teaching a group of people. Certainly, we try our best to be accurate and to be, and to be fair to what God says, um, and it is a overwhelming uh, task sometimes, but we want to stay faithful and true to that. And uh, one of our goals is it's not just about knowledge. Now, today you're going to get some knowledge dropped on you, but it's not about that. It's much more important that we are able to take that and able to apply it. And so here at Hope, we want to be overly practical in our teaching. We want you to be able to leave here being able to do something about that. And so there are different series we do. Often they are topical so that we can relate those to our real life. Others are uh, expository. We're gonna talk about a book of the Bible for the next several weeks. We are gonna dig in a little bit and really get under the surface. And that's what we're doing today with this book of Ephesians. Before I get there, let's do a review of what the Bible is because some of you may be in here or watching today that have, maybe it's their first time in church, you're not really sure. You didn't grow up in church or you haven't you know, really heard much about God and what the Bible is about. And so I wanna do just kind of a really quick overview if you're in that boat. And even if you're not, even if you've grown up in the church, this is really good review for us. Did this a few months ago in another series. Um, so I think it's just really good to, to rehearse. So the Bible, as we know it, is broken up into two parts, right? We have the Old Testament, and we have the New Testament. And behind me is a slide here that kind of breaks this out. In the Old Testament, there are 39 books. A lot of these books have to deal with um, the stories of uh, uh, Israel, all right? This was God's chosen people, the Jews. And we see here from the beginnings of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, how this, how this nation began to form. And all of the stories that we hear, like about Jonah and about King David, all the kings, that comes from the Old Testament. Now remember, Jesus is not introduced yet in the Bible. So all of these people that we hear about in those stories, we're looking forward to Jesus coming. Very different scenario from the New Testament, which has 27 books. And you see the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the books that start introducing us to Jesus. Those are the books that start talking about the birth of Jesus, which we just celebrated, all the way through his life. And then we get to Acts, which is really the beginnings of people who followed the way of Jesus, picking up and starting. And this is really about the church. How did the first church get started? And so then we get to uh, the rest of the books and you could see Paul. Look at all of those letters that he wrote. 
Paul, as I said, I've said before, wrote about half of the New Testament. And so today, when we get started in this series, he is the guy who is the author of this book that we're going to look at, which is one of these epistles called Ephesians. Let me talk about that a little bit. This book, uh, by the way, by the way, um, if you want to take notes, I really encourage you to do this uh, today. Take out a piece of paper, may take out your phone. Um, if you're online, the notes are in our, um, uh, a link on YouTube and Facebook. You can see it right there. You can draw those up. A lot of people have asked me lately for our notes, and so I'm going to try to make it available every week. You can go to our website even and get those notes for today. Um, but anyway, it was written now, this book of Ephesians, around 60 years after the time of Jesus, 62, 63 or so. It was written by this man named Paul, and it was written while he was in prison. Talk about that more in a second as well. There are six chapters in the book of Ephesians. There are 155 verses that we're going to look at over the course of the next six weeks or so. And of all of the churches that Paul was around, that he ministered to, that he taught, that he hung out with, this was the church he was closest to. This was the church he spent the most time with. This was the church he loved. He knew them the best. And in the book of Acts, like I just said, that tells about all the starting of these churches, we find a really interesting passage there, and we see a big portion, Acts chapter 19 and Acts chapter 20, of his time spent in Ephesus. And his impact was profound. I'll read this really quick. It's not going to be up there. It says, uh, when Paul had finished speaking, this is back in the book of Acts, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. So he has this big speech. You know, he's, he's expressing uh, how much he loves them and is so appreciative of their time together. And it says, they all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. And what grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. So obviously, this man was huge, uh, a, a piece of the de spiritual development of this group of believers in Ephesus. Let's talk about Ephesus for a minute. Ephesus, as we know it, is in modern-day Turkey. You can kind of see where it is on the map there. At the time, it was the fifth largest city in the world, and it was literally like the cultural center, the artists, the philosophers. It was a port city. It was right on the water, so it was a place of commerce. So you had businessmen and tradesmen, um, uh, blacksmiths, uh, which uh, was a really big piece of what they did as well. It's actually called the first and greatest metropolis of Asia. They had advanced aqueduct systems and advanced sewage systems, very different than other towns in that day. Now, if you remember, if you are here a few months ago, we talked about the book of Colossians. And I said, Colossians was also, Colossians and Ephesians, there's a lot of similarities in these books. Again, I might talk about that in a little while. But Colossians was really cool because it was very, it reminded me of like East Hampton. Okay, it was a smaller community, uh, diverse um, uh, in the, our ways of thinking and, and, and things like that, um, and, and, and uh, maybe a little bit more well-to-do, that kind of thing. So it was a smaller uh, place. Uh, and then I said about 100 miles away um, is New York City, right? 
And it's really interesting because this is the way that it lays out. Like, you got to think of Ephesus as like the New York City of the time. It was the place. It was about 100 miles from Colossae. And this is where all the action was happening. I don't know if you know, I love New York City. I am all about it. Uh, it. Just to be in this multicultural, diverse, all the different kinds of things you could ever want, good and bad, in New York City. So that's how you got to think of it. Um, there were over 50 gods that were worshipped in uh, that time, particularly in that city, and kind of all forms of this were accepted. Didn't it kind of matter? They, they kind of prided themselves on their tolerance, at least in some way. You know, so we had uh, Greeks, and we have Romans, and we have Jewish people who were worshiping their invisible God. They were all this big blend of people. Now, what you also may or may not know is that the city of Ephesus was home to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And it was what we would call the Temple of Artemis or the Temple of Diana, depending if you were Greek or Roman. If you were Greek, it was the Temple of Artemis. If you were Roman, it was the Temple of Diana. And this temple was a feat of architecture. It was made completely out of marble, this massive, massive structure, some of which still remains today. Like I said, it was, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, a feat of architecture. And then every year, that's what it was known for. So every year then, people from all over would come to this one place and worship their gods. And there would be these feasts. And so it would be overrun with all different kinds of people, commerce would go up. I mean, it was just a booming thing. And to be honest, this is where Paul got in trouble. Because Paul kind of stood up and said, hey, we believe in another kind of God. And it kind of, even though they claimed to be tolerant, as we all know, some of them became a bit intolerant of what they didn't like to hear. And it kind of made some people angry. And that's how Paul ended up in prison, honestly. And so now he begins to write all these books from prison, Ephesians being one of them. And we find some of that story, by the way, in that same Acts chapter 19 and chapter 20. And it's in prison where he writes much of the Bible. So now we're going to dive into just the big overview today. I'm not going to get super crazy. I'm just going to give you the big highlights of this book so that as we go forward, you'll see a context for everything that we're going to talk about. So let's just start Ephesians chapter one. If you're following me, Ephesians chapter one, verse one and two. I'm gonna read those verses. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. I'm gonna stop there. There we go. We have our author. He names who he is. And let me just say this about Paul. He really had this desire to say something. He had this desire to teach. And Paul was very particular in the way he taught. And said, in fact, he says, there's two things I want for you when you teach. He's telling one of his person he was mentoring, his name is Timothy. He was telling him this. There's two things you need to do when you teach. And we find these words in Titus 2.15. He says, these are the things you need to do. He says, you need to encourage and you need to rebuke with all authority. You need to encourage and you need to rebuke. I've said that before. Every time I step on this stage anyways, I want to encourage you. Also, we sometimes need 
to fix the things that are kind of a little bit out or get a little clear understanding of what God wants for us. That's what we would call rebuke. Now, that's kind of a strong word. We don't really use that as much today. I like the word admonish. And so that's really the basic root of what Paul is saying here. This word admonish, the idea was something is out of joint. Something was just not right, and we kind of had to set it again. We had to set it back in place. And much of Paul's writings, if not most of Paul's writings, were these admonishing books. But Ephesians is different. Ephesians is super encouraging. In fact, it's the only book that scholars would say um, that there was not a single issue that Paul was addressing to these, this Ephesian church. There wasn't this single thing that he was kind of honing in on and saying, uh, we got to be careful here. We got to come back uh, to center. No, this was definitely more general. In fact, it has led some people to believe this was maybe more of a letter. Maybe it first went to the Ephesian group of people, but maybe it was meant to be taken to all the different churches in the area. So that's kind of one key difference in Ephesians. So encouraging and admonishing. Go on. Written to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. I want to stop here again. I think it's just important to get context of where Paul is going with this. When we think of saints, when we think of saints today, we think of people who are dead and gone, right? For the most part, we look back and we think of saints and those people have gone on and we look back and we honor and respect them. But this is not the way the Bible uses the term saints. That word literally means the set apart ones. He's saying those of you who have decided to follow the way of Jesus, maybe you would call yourself Christian, he's calling you saints. To those of you who are gonna stay faithful, to the God, the invisible God we cannot see, but the one that we can look back on now and see what he did on the cross, what we just celebrated in communion, right? That's what he's calling saints. So he's actually addressing you and me. He's saying to those of you who wanna be faithful to Jesus, those of you who have put your faith in Jesus, you are saints. You're not dead, you're alive. Dead people can't do anything, but you the things I'm about to say, these are things that you need to be doing in your lives. The set-apart ones, the faithful, the ones who are following the way. And then verse 2 says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just want to just highlight that term, grace and peace. Here comes that encouraging peace again that I'm talking about, that Paul goes on and on about this book. We find this phrase or portions of this phrase 12 different times throughout this book. He's giving them this grace and peace. This grace was this, this typical Greek um, uh, welcome, admonishment. It was undeserved favor, privilege. And then he brings in the Hebrew greeting of shalom, right? Which was peace, uh, uh, spiritual prosperity, a blessing of completeness. And so he goes on in that, in that vein, as he's giving them these, these accolades in verse three, it says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. One of the most popular books that I read um, 
while back, a commentary on Ephesians is called Be Rich. Be Rich. Why did this author, commentator, scholar name his book Be Rich? Because he said Ephesians is all about the blessings that we find in Jesus. The blessings we find in following the way. This word riches is used five times in the book. This word grace is used 12 times. The word glory is used eight times. The word fullness or filled up or fills is worth uh, is used six times. Is this constant language of there is a richness found in Jesus. There's a richness. There's a difference. There's a blessing found in the way that you have not heard of before or that you will not find in another religion. And here's what I would say for those of you who like um, uh, random facts, because I'm one of those uh, people who like random facts. Verse 3 through verse 14 ends up becoming the longest sentence in all of the Bible. I find it really interesting. Verse 3, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, is the longest sentence in all of the Bible. Now, what ends up happening is, as translators put it into the, uh, you know, English, they ended up putting some commas and some periods in there. But in the original language, verse 3 through 14 is one big, long, run-on sentence. Why is that fun and why is that significant? And I would just say this as a, as a possibility. I think Paul was so excited to be able to share what God had on his heart that he just went on, check this out, check this out. Now, I'm not gonna exegete this passage. I'm gonna leave that to Carrie next week. But he goes on and on. And here's the thing what I would say that sticks out to me. It's all about you. He uses that word you, uh, I, I don't know, I think it, um, I thought I wrote it down how many times. It's, it's a ton of times, maybe like 12 times or something, it, just in that one passage alone. Really, really, really interesting stuff to me. Then I think about the shortest book, the verse in the Bible. Does anybody know what that one is? John eleven thirty five says, Jesus wept, which I find it very interesting. In keeping with the humility of Jesus, that the shortest verse in the Bible is about Jesus, but yet the longest verse in the Bible is about us. I just find that fascinating. Okay, I'm gonna keep going. So I'm pulling out the key verse. As we go through this series, as we journey through this together, we've kind of got our backdrop. We kind of know who the characters are in the story. We kind of know maybe a little bit about what's going on in the world at that time. And this is where I think we find Paul's heart. Find it in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. It says this. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, I read this last week, by the way, the glorious Father may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. That's why he's writing this book. There's something for you here. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Remember I had my light switch last week? That he may, you may be enlightened, that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches, there's that word, of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. So I want to talk about a couple words here. I'm going to just, again, just drop in some knowledge here. So that word wisdom. Literally means something that is revealed. Something that you are going to know about. Not a whole lot 
you know, more than what we would think it to be, to disclose the knowledge of something. You're going to be revealed something to know. But then he uses this other word. My translation I'm using uses the word revelation. Some of yours might use the word knowledge. And there's a different word he uses there. And it's saying, it's not just about knowing something. You're also, it's this deeper knowing. You're gonna know it and you're gonna more deeply know it. You're gonna be able to, maybe this will help you discern it. So my heart is that you will know and that you're also going to be able to discern it. You're gonna have to do something with it. You're gonna be able to figure out how this practically applies to your life. And I've tried to think about, you know, what is the difference with that? And just my quick illustration was, you know, I, I know what it means to love somebody. I know what it means to know somebody. But it's different for me with my wife. I asked her, I leaned over to her right before I came up here. I says, how long have I known you? And she says, over 30 years. So now, when I'm able to, we're in a situation, I, all I have to do is look at her. And I, most of the time, most of the time, know what she's thinking. Or just by her body language, I know how she's feeling. And to me, that's the difference. Like, it's not like I can't know people or love people, but there's a different level. I really know. I really know because I've spent time and I've invested in that relationship. I know what she's thinking. I know what I'm supposed to do because of that look. You know what I'm talking about. So Paul is saying he wants God to unveil unveil such a precise knowing of him that the light turns on in your life, that you could become fully committed to him and that your very existence becomes a testament to him. And that's where we get our title, you are in Christ. This phrase is used, depending again on your translation, 20 to 30 times in this book. In Christ, in Christ, you are this in Christ, you are that in Christ. You have this in Christ. You have these blessings, these riches, this hope. So here's a way to look at Ephesians. I'm wrapping up here in the next few minutes. Here's a big way as we go through the series to look at Ephesians. Number one, it's divided up into two main sections. I told you it had six chapters. The best way that I think we could look at this book is if you take chapters one, two, and three. It's all about doctrine. It's all about, how I'm going to say, what we believe. What is it that Christians believe? What is it that the Bible teaches? Some of you are very curious. I think this will help you. This is also the time that we're probably going to dive into some very difficult, strange words that you would only hear in church sometimes. What do those things mean? Things like election, adoption, or forgiveness in the biblical sense, or transformation, or who am I in Christ? What is it that defines me? What does belonging to Jesus mean? We're gonna dive into that stuff, and we see all of that right in the first half of this book, chapters one, two, and three. And then it has this transition. And then it has this transition to where the next three chapters, four, five, and six, is all about practice, which I'm calling how we behave. So when we look at Ephesians together, we're going to find out what we believe and therefore, which is the word that is used, then how will we act on that? In other words, it goes back to Bob. 
Bob believed certain things about the world. He believed certain things. He had uh, uh, his outlook for whatever reason, right or wrong, implicated what he would do from there. It determined his actions. So we're gonna dive into what does being a Christian look like? How do we behave? What does personal faith look like? What does, and this is a really big theme, working with each other look like? The church. He goes in this big, long thing about what the church is about. And let me give you a hint. Another key word, unity. What does unity mean? So here's two major themes. First one, hope in Christ. Again, as we journey through this together, you're gonna see something really big that you have a hope in Christ. In Christ, we have hope. What we believe gives us hope. And I'm gonna let you in on a secret. It's something that Paul calls the mystery. It says that there are no more walls of separation between people. That there are no more insiders to the Jewish way of faith to the Jewish God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Everybody's an insider. There are no more outsiders. This is for everyone, for all the saints. Jew, Gentile. And then the second theme is life in Christ. What is that all about? And so here's the big idea if you're taking notes or following along. The big idea is this. What we believe will determine how we live. What we believe determines how we live. What we believe determines how we behave. We'll get into the doctrine stuff. And I'm just going to warn you right now. I am a person who does not like to get controversial. Some of the things are going to rub you the wrong way, probably. That's okay. That's okay. I'm just gonna to be totally honest and say, we're gonna to try to do our best to come through and teach what we believe God's heart is in that passage. Some of you might end up having a different takeaway and I'm okay with that. But we're gonna teach you some of that doctrine. What does this mean for you? But then secondly, it's gonna determine how then does that impact my life? What do I do from here with that? And as Paul wraps it up, he wraps it up with this beautiful closing prayer and I find it fitting that once again, he ends with grace and peace. Charis and shalom. May God give you peace and hope and blessing in your life. See, Paul is not arguing for anything in this book. He wants to encourage us all the way through. And as we go through this together, as a church, as a community, both here in person and online, follow along, write down, what is God telling you? We're gonna get super, super practical. Are you ready to dig in? All right, come back next week. Don't forget, 10 o'clock right here. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this church. You have called us to be an expression in this time, in this place, in this community. And for that, I am grateful to be a part of it. Lord, I pray that you would protect Hope Church, that you would protect the unity of this place, 
that you would protect our hearts. Even as we do our best to teach what we believe your heart is in scripture, God, I pray that you would just take away all the things from people's, that people might take in. Uh, God, as, as, um, if they don't need to hear that, if they don't need to dwell on that, just take it right from them. God, I wanna have open hands and open heart as we go through and we study this together. But God, it is important to know who you are and how we respond to that. So help us to do that in community, with love, with grace, and with peace. In Jesus' name.